0: All right. You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. And joining me today is Austin Bunn, author of the short story collection, The Brink, which Harper Perennial will publish on April 28th. Austin's fiction and nonfiction have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, the Pushcart Prize, Zotrope, and other outlets. He co-wrote the screenplay for Kill Your Darlings, which premiered at Sundance. Austin has worked as a writing teacher, boat carpenter, game designer for reality television, columnist, book ghostwriter, and journalist. He is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and teaches at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Welcome, Austin, and thank Thank you you. for joining me.
1: Thank you, Ana Maria.
0: Thank you for the brink. Uh, Jess Walter, author of the number one New York Times best-selling Beautiful Ruins, among others, describes you as a young writer to reckon with, and he says that the brink is everything you want in a story collection funny, inventive, somehow both expansive and wistful. And then one of our sales reps describes the stories as from the school of slap you awake, imaginative fiction. Now, how would you describe these stories?
1: Uh, Well, I was just retyping Jess's blurb for some reason. Maybe a friend asked me what he had said, and I remember writing wistful, expansive and wistful, right, are the two words he used. And uh, I thought that's it's such a writerly way to describe a writer's work. For me, most of the t- most of the time, I think about um, writing that really grabs you by the lapels. I want to feel like the writer is in charge and needs to tell me what they're what they're saying. Uh, there's a writing teacher, um, Tom Spanbauer, out of Portland, and Chuck Palahniuk is one of his students and he talks about this idea of burnt tongue that you're listening to a story because it's it's coming out of someone's mouth who has just arrived in the room from an accident and so I, I think about my stories as urgent I guess yeah. but also uh, maybe uh, maybe it's hard as an author to say this but I feel like they're also very um, vulnerable and they're about yeah. stories of people who are vulnerable and, and searching for connection
0: yeah that's true but it, it what struck me about this collection is that each story, the settings and the characters and the plot are so distinct from one another because it seems more common these days to write these interconnected series of stories. But in your opinion, is there a through line to the stories?
1: There is one, but, you know, I didn't start out with that intention. I think we just, our obsessions reveal us as you write over time. Um, I remember when I started working on, probably the bedrock of the collection are stories like Ledge and The End of the Ages Upon Us, stories about transformational moments and after writing three or four stories that are about small communities undergoing massive transformation I realized oh I think I'm just kind of interested in these moments of annihilation that's the connection and and what's possible in that moment of annihilation and the transformations that come from it uh you know I I really love writers with range I I grew up on writers like Jim Shepard uh John Sayles the screenwriter and novelist um and Jennifer Egan, for example, yeah. people who just feel like the whole world is their terrain, and so I'm still I'm still uh, learning the shape of the world. I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm traveling a lot, still meeting a lot of new people, and I, I wanted to tell write a short story collection that didn't feel like it was insular and domesticated.
0: That is exactly what you accomplished, because, like I said, they're they're also distinct. They're also large and yet intimate. So I guess that's what we're all trying to say together. Now, were they so? Were they written within a specific time frame, and intended to be collected?
1: So I think like a lot of younger writers, you struggle to figure out, is this really a short story collection that's worth anyone publishing, or is it just this buckshot of the material that I'm producing as I build up to try to write something longer? Uh, having written Kill Your Darlings, this the film, I think gave me in some ways the confidence that like everything that I was working on was interconnected. So that's what led me to think, okay, I'm, this is ready to be a book. Um, I found myself thinking while I was working on the stories that uh, – Uh, that these days the publishing industry may be less interested in collections like this one. It's
0: just harder. It's
1: just harder. There's not maybe the economic model, but I think there are readers for them. Mm. I know, I asked um, my agent a long time ago, like, what makes the difference between Jennifer Egan's Pulitzer Prize winning A Visit from the Goon Squad and some other awesome short story collection published by a small press? And his answer was Imagination. On
0: the part of the publisher? On the
1: part of the author and the way that the publisher thought about About the work. was presenting it? Yeah, that that imagination was really the important part, that the book was going to be something that would travel. So uh, when I had that recognition, I thought, okay, I think these are ready to come together as a book.
0: So that sort of gave you the courage to say, all right, you know, I I can meet that goal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Some of these, I graduated from the Iowa Writers' Workshop in 2007, and I think one or two of the stories had their genesis then. But, um, so they've flown, they've kind of emerged out over the time of the late 2000s, um, aughts, I guess I should say, and, uh, and into now. It's funny, it's already 2015.
0: Right. Now, how yeah. did you arrive at the title?
1: So, uh, I'm really into titles. And it's funny, I teach creative writing now, and so many students will just say really openly, I'm terrible at titles, I hate my title, this is a terrible title, placeholder title goes here. And I always say to them, it's like not naming your baby, like it's time to make a name and stand behind it. For a while, the collection had this awful placeholder title called How Will Go. How Will we'll Go. Which had to do with the idea of transiting over some precipice or something. And then um, I, that word brinksm- brinkmanship had kind of been in my language for a while, and I thought that's really what the collection's about, or about these moments of mm-hmm. change. So, and I, I, I like the idea of really simple declarative titles. There are so many awesome titles out there. I mean, A Visit from the Goon Squad, Adam Hazlitt's uh, You Are Not a Stranger Here, a collection that really inspired yeah. me. Ones that invoke something that really feel like they, um, they draw you in. And I'm so honored by the, t- the cover that the um, yeah, it's designer a very pulled up.
0: Amazing. Describe the cover.
1: So, the cover of the book looks like a nuclear uh, explosion plume. But it has all this beauty and depth to it. It looks like ink at the same time, so it's kind of red in the crown and then orange and yellow in the in the stem it, of it.
0: It almost looks like an abstract painting as much as a plume, you know.
1: It used to have this, like <laughs> we were just talking about this, it used to have these purpley sort of um, spirals at the bottom where the, I think it's ink or smoke that's being jetted into a room. And it looked a little bit like an interstellar perfume ad in the first (laughs) version of it. Although, as I've come to learn, the designer went through many drafts. So this was like the final version, the one that everybody was excited about. So we refined it a little bit. So, I, you know, personally, I think it looks like uh, a Rorschach test a little bit.
0: Oh, right. But just a a very
1: deep one as opposed to just a flat ink one.
0: Now that you say it, it does look like that.
1: Look, book covers are one of these things for every author. It's like a high wire act. You just don't. You just don't know. You're like handing over your child for someone else to yeah. to give it a face. Right. So I feel very lucky, and, and uh, you know credit to Greg who designed it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, who are who are your first readers?
1: In my life, or yes, in,
0: your actual life.
1: So this this answer will go out to my friend Max Ross, who um, became my best friend in seventh and eighth grade, and. Like a lot of writers, I was like writing short stories on graph paper and uh, handing them to friends with tapes, with mixed tapes oh, of music to go with it. So
0: the music was to be listened to while. At you very were specific reading.
1: points in the story, there were little asterisks on the side of the page.
0: You know you can do that now in ebooks. Really? They can underscore it.
1: You need to show me how to do that because I want to know. i tell you
0: about that later. <laughs>
1: So that those are my first, my best friend Max. I went to in college. I started writing plays in high school. This will answer some of the questions about who yeah, I am God, as a moving this target. Is
0: tell you the whole, this can tell me everything I need to
1: know. I love. I mean, I always loved books in science fiction and speculative fiction, really primarily. Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke. Those were the first r- books that I really fell in love with. Childhood's End, for example. Then I started writing plays in high school. Then in college, I went back to fiction and screenwriting. I think uh, because sc- I mean, film is one of the most powerful art forms we have. One of my frustrations as a writer is I can't be with people when they read my work. Um, Mm. I want to be inside their hands. I want to understand how they're interpreting what they're experiencing. With film, you have a little bit more proximity to that experience, the encounter with it. So that said, so I ended up uh, in my 20s becoming a journalist. I worked for a lot of magazines and... I think something, an artifact of that interest and curiosity about the world is still in the book. I mean, some of that, the world range that the book has, if if we can say that it has it, is because I'm really interested in people and I liked traveling the world and like the end of the age of the, this upon us, a story about the San Diego Heaven's Gate cult came from the moment I was working at Newsweek magazine at the time. And
0: and you became aware of it? became
1: aware of it. And we, the front cover of the magazine that week when they all died and they suicided was all these images of all the members of the cult. I mean, it's t- late upper 20s, some people committed suicide. But there were only really two faces of people that were in their 20s. And it was a young man and a young woman. Yeah. And I imagine what would happen if these two people fell in love while in the final days of this cult. So... That's a really flyover version of my biography, but my early readers were my close friends, and since um, since grad school, it's been a lot of my other uh, great writers, who are some of whom are on the list at Harper Perennial. Kevin Moffat, for example.
0: So. Do you intend Do you intend to next write a novel? Or I mean, was this sort of your warm-up, do you think?
1: I just got back from the AWP conference, uh-huh. uh, the big writer's conference that happened in Minneapolis. And, you know, it's, I've had the genesis for a novel for a while, and it, it sort of started to kick into gear while I was out there, maybe because I was surrounded by some of really other novelists. Uh, I've been thinking about it more. I also work in film and do screenwriting and um, and nonfiction writing. So I think, you know, it's a, it's kind of a matter of pregnancy, and I'm not sure I've conceived yet i still got to wait a little right,
0: while. Right, so, you, so you, can't, you can't answer yet. <laughs> I right? can't
1: answer yeah, that yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I'm, I'm interested that you started writing stage plays in high school. So what kind of encouragement did you get? Because that would seem like such a challenging thing that that might actually diminish, you know, appetite to continue on this road rather well, than encourage it.
1: I think, uh, well, the question of encouraging young writers, I mean, that's a really important one to think about because I think a lot of younger writers now are, I know that um, Ira Glass has this, uh, thing that he says about, you know, you get into the game to be a creative person because your taste is killer, and it's it's excellent. It's way up here. It's at the top of the scale. But your own ability to produce is kind of low, yeah. and most people give up in the, the gap. gap yeah, they can't handle the gap, right? Yeah, yeah, they
0: just they get frustrated. And yeah. you just have
1: to produce enough to start closing the gap, and eventually you get to the point where your taste and your skill are almost at the same level. So when I was a teenager, um, I think I was like I was just a really spazzy emotional person, and theater really helped me socialize, right? <laughs> uh, but what I liked so much about theater was scene, was just literally like what it meant to have dialogue in two characters in a yeah. room, much of which was in my stor- short stories. I realized right. the big lesson for me as a writer as I've gotten older has been interiority. I was a sci-fi reader. I underst- like everything was about external life and I didn't understand that the inner life and consciousness was what most people read for. That's what books are good at. So who gave me encouragement to answer that part of your question? I think some, you have to at some point give yourself permission to enjoy it for the process, whether anybody tells you it's good. And so, I mean, those of you who are listening to this podcast, that's, that's what I would say. It's like at some point you have to listen to your own poll star and figure out this is the direction I need to go in.
0: And what do you think – I'm curious because we're talking about short stories and you write in so many different mediums. What do you think about the, the huge rise in popularity and substance of these, um, you know, the serial television shows, the, the quality that, that's lifted? How, how do you think that that's going to affect – you know, book writing or short story writing and vice versa? Because I I do think that there's a link there.
1: I completely agree. There's a, we can talk about this in a lot of different ways. I teach these days dramatic writing at Cornell University, and I really think the pilot has become the new novel. Like, for a lot of these younger people, they want to write a pilot. Uh, One of the main reasons of the appeal of that is um, it's a collaborative form. So you're actually not really, it's not all dependent on you to generate everything. And a novel is a, Right. Not that I know, but my sense is that it demands a lot of imagination and time and commitment in a way that television doesn't take nearly as much time to produce the same, um, same amount of material. Uh, I think it has something to do with the fact that we live in a culture where people respond to multimodal art anyway, music, film, story happening at the same time. My sense we're seeing in novels, I mean, I think there's been a general recognition that a lot of novels have, are, feel like they're almost just screenplays mm-hmm. with a little bit more fat on the bones. And so what novels are, it's almost testing the genre and it's making the great novels really stand out because they are so rich with that interior life, which is the thing film can't do. Right. Um, I would see, I think TV is an exciting place to be, but most people that I know that work in television, and now these days I have friends who do, uh, it's 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 a hard place to have that be the only thing you do mm-hmm. because your life is so wound up into the industrialization of the forum and you don't have that much freedom
0: You have such a range of interests and proficiencies, and one of the things that I read about you was your interest in sound and sound design yeah. so so talk to me about that.
1: Well, let me start by saying that there's an artist named Losel out of Vancouver that I'm really interested in, partly because he's an electroacoustic composer. So what that means is that he's somebody who's really tuned into making music out of natural sounds and the sound of a bowed vibraphone, for example. Um, I think the thing that I've been thinking about a lot for myself as a writer is that our our eyes can close, our ears cannot. So unlike, say, film, where you can turn off television, you can turn off the film uh, screen, you cannot... Close your ears. So you are always sensitive to the stories and noises coming in that way. I think I have a twin brother who's a professional musician. He lives in Chicago, and I think I always grew up with a sensitivity to good sound and to musicianship. And as you'll, you, know, those of you that are may read the book, I'm my mom was an academic interested in languages. So I've become. I was always sensitized to the way people spoke and the way people uh, fit in and created fluency, either physically or with their voice. And so and there's just so much music in the way people speak.
0: Tell us what the beat generation means to you and, and sort of how it led to Kill Your Darlings.
1: Uh well, I think like a lot of college students, I discovered the beat writers in, in in college when I was very much trying to figure out who I was and how to combine an interesting life and the life of an artist. And I think the beats Allen Ginsberg really was my gateway drug. Reading his poetry, not even the good stuff. I always admit that, like not even the classics. Like most of the more rough and tumble, a little bit explicit material from like the 80s and 90s. And his journals as well. My friend Max that I mentioned before gave me Ginsberg's journals from when he was, when, uh, when Ginsberg was traveling around India. And I remember having to look up what peyote was when I was like in eighth grade. Um, and by the way, the dictionary definition of peyote didn't really help yeah, me. No, when I was it was not
0: applicable. Um,
1: so, uh, the, you know, when you, ha- when you read one beat, you tend to read all of them. And what I found was there are these proliferations of bios of those guys. And the story of this one fellow, David Kammerer, who was a friend to them and a little bit of an outlier, and the murder trial that they had been wrapped up in really transfixed me, I think, because as a young gay person, this Allen Ginsberg represented everything I admired. And yet at this one moment in his life, he had been responsible for... Uh, I don't know I mean responsible is not the right word but wrapped up in a trial that had really contradicted everything I admired about him so the genesis of that film script began in about 2004 when my college roommate John Krakidis graduated from film school and we decided to start working on the script together and then you know so many years later we were able to put together the financing for the film and, and tell that story to audiences and there's
0: an interesting story around that title as well so please tell that
1: Uh, Well, I can tell you the fact that it wasn't always the title of the film, but uh, the original title of the film... we had a few different ones. The first one was Extraordinary, which is not a good title. But John John felt really strongly that we needed to emphasize the theme of the piece, and it had to do with this tension between what did it mean to be ordinary versus extraordinary. Neither of us really liked that title. Then it became The Night in Question, and I thought that was a cool idea. I loved the Tobias Wolf short story collection called The Night in Question. John had not heard of it, uh, but that also sounded like a Lifetime movie that no one actually would watch. And then Kill Your Darlings came from just being in grad school and hearing it as a a turn of phrase about what to right. do with my own prose, and it had the doubleness that we seek in titles.
0: That's sort of the, you know, the classic show, don't tell, and kill your darlings. So I think that I think that really works. Thank you. Can you tell us about the um, Patient Voice project? Oh, yeah. are, you still, are you still working on that?
1: Patient Voice is a little bit on hiatus, if only because I've moved around a little bit. Yeah. But people have really expressed interest in trying to reinvigorate it. The premise of Patient Voice was to teach creative writing to people with chronic illnesses and the bereaved and a variety of populations, really. And you see there's a proliferation of these kinds of programs all over the place, uh, partly because there's scientific evidence that shows that people who reflect about their experiences, either with pain or in bereavement, experience greater senses of well-being and and a sense of coherence in their life. So there's a medical reason to do it, but the main reason as a teacher of writing and someone passionate about writing, you really see writing do some work for people. And I remember living in Iowa City as a grad student, working with a young mom who had been diagnosed with a stage 4 brain tumor, and having her do writing exercises to help contextualize her life and what she was going through. And those were some of the most meaningful hours I spent in grad school. Wow, yeah. So, um, so yeah, if anybody's listening and wants to know more, I'm happy to share some of the materials we have because we're hoping to have the program um, continue to bloom out there.
0: Yeah. Is that, recent, is that recent evidence around keeping a journal and writing things out? Because I, I feel like I've seen that more recently, that evidence.
1: Yeah, I don't know that they entirely understand why, but yeah. one, of the, one of the major um, vectors or however you like effects is that stress hormone levels go down mm-hmm. if you spend time writing and reflecting on any experiences you've had. So it's a way that the body sort of inoculates itself by thinking about reflecting on things or anticipating things as a way of helping the stress hormone go down. Very, um, very provocative research. And as a graduate student, when all I thought writing was good for was getting published and maybe making, selling a short story somewhere, it was it was a wonderful and and exceptional experience to see it do work for people in their real lives.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. You seem to have a real genuine enthusiasm for teaching, which is not always true of writers. Is is that true?
1: I think that's really true. My mom was a teacher. My whole family is teachers. I have an older sister who teaches second grade. My dad taught French for a while. My brother taught guitar. Uh, the best thing that ever happened to me as a writer was having to teach about writing because I had to think about what the principles were that I was teaching towards. And although I'll say, you know, it was, it's been interesting being at the AWP and finding myself really reconsidering what are some of the principles of my own approach. Uh, and, oh, really?
0: And, Why? Tell <clears throat> us what happened.
1: Well, I think what happens is you see a panel. I saw Rebecca Mackay, for example, on a panel, a wonderful short story writer and novelist, and she talked about, well, her structural premise for her stories has to do with there's a reversal in the second or third page. And then there should be a reversal very near the end. And then that's the structural conceit she operates on. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way. To me, I think about the Freytag Triangle where there's an inciting incident and a choice yeah. at, the, yeah. at the climax. Yeah. And so to have somebody else's um, standards and started to apply them to my own work, I was like, interesting. Do they hold up? Some of them do. Some don't. Structures are, I think, we, you know, they come and go. Like, there were certain periods in my life where I wrote according to the A, B, D, C, E system, the action, background, development, climax, ending, which was useful, I suppose, as a younger writer, but you grow out of it. Um, Yeah, I guess in a way they're they're all a little bit like phases or periods of your life. You choose certain structures. And so, anyhow, yeah, I was finding myself reconsidering that some is, of my Facebook. That principles.
0: is interesting. So that you that you all got down to that level of detail. That sounds like a really that's a writers that's conference like for you. Yeah. Um, really serious. Actually, this is
1: what I love because it's the stuff that's the most uh, transportable and kind of sticky. You can take it home. Students love that stuff too, especially when you're starting out. You want to know, oh, right, start with action. Right. Don't lead with exposition. Right. Okay.
0: Is, is this the first book you've published? I know you were a ghostwriter. What, what did you ghostwrite?
1: So I ghostwrote some books, which I cannot actually name, okay. but uh, we're sort of celebrity memoirs.
0: Okay, But so this is the first book that you've published. Yeah. Now tell me, um, so you're, you're published by one of the, the main trade houses. Mm. How is it different from what you imagined? And, uh-huh. and I, I, I'm always interested in, in people's actual process of being published.
1: So, well, it's a, it's a really interesting question because I feel like the publishing industry is very opaque. You live inside it, so you see how everybody swims and where they go and what each house, is, house means. But I remember it took me until my late 20s really to understand that the houses had personalities and were looking for different kinds of things. That It's like learning to look at a byline instead of the article in a magazine. Like that taught me a lot as a magazine journalist. The experience has been a total pleasure and very easy. My editor, Emily Cunningham, is fabulous. I think she's um, she's been interested on the scout. She saw a piece of mine that was published in f- uh, Five Chapters, which is an online short story publication outlet that Dave Daly, who is the editor-in-chief of Salon, runs. And so she identified a piece of mine there that she was excited about and reached out. The experience has been very easy. I think some writers go through a big revision process. Short story collections have a slightly different uh Biography, just because once they've been published, you don't yeah. necessarily need to go back and rewrite them. But um, she did give me some direction and opportunities to maybe look again at some things, and that was kind of great. They were like old friends that I hadn't really spent a lot of oh, time that's with. Good to hear. You know, maybe these stories had been published over about six years, which um, you know meant that some of them were like, "Oh, right, that's what happened in that story," and that was great. We, um, it was been, it's been a very seamless process. It does take a long time, I think, for people Doesn't on the outside. Mean. We sold the book in January 2014, so it's a year yeah. and a half later, and the book isn't finally out. So you have to talk about it like you just gave birth, but truthfully, it's been a little while. The baby's in, right. it's not really preschool. But so it's, did anything
0: know. surprise you that was of note?
1: I I was surprised um, about the impact of the story order. You When you order a short story collection, you sort of think about... In my case, I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll organize it by the age of the protagonist, or maybe I'll order it by the prestige of the publications, or maybe I'll just put it in the order that feels completely random but might be exciting for people. And more and more, as people have come up to me having had a chance to take a look at the book and how they respond to different pieces and they see the interconnections that I did not see, that's been, uh, that's been really fun. It's like a new side of the house I'm living in. Yeah, that's so, cool. So, yeah, that has been great.
0: All right, now I want to speak to you as a reader. Okay. So what was the last book you had a conversation about, and what did you
1: say? So the most recent book that I read that I had a conversation about probably had to do with uh, 1004, Ben Lerner's novel, memoir, whatever you want to call it. Partly, I think, because I needed friends to help contextualize what it was doing. I loved Leaving the Atocha Station, his first book. And you can see very much his background as a poet in the novel and having lived in Brooklyn and worked at the Co-op, I felt like he had been transiting through all these places that I too had lived in, and it's very much a Brooklyn writer's novel. I mean, you don't—he's not trying to do anything else. Uh, but it's a book that also doesn't. Speaking of structure, doesn't have the kind of structure that you might anticipate from a novel. There's no transformation. There's no strong drive. It's a book that's incidental and really carries itself by its language and its perceptual power. So, and it was—I have a couple of friends in. Um, in Ithaca, where I live these days, who are also artists and musicians. Some of they're actually the one person I'm thinking of is, is just a musician, and she had also been really spellbound by the novels. So that was really that was really fun. I miss having those conversations about books. I think TV and film have supplanted that we're, kind of conversation. All,
0: that's why I asked earlier. We're all talking about TV and having these long, detailed, animated conversations around the plots of TV shows. I think that that's a distinct difference.
1: It is. They've been, there's been pushback against binge viewing too for the very, that same reason that if people all watch a show at once, then you can't really talk to anyone else right. unless they've also watched all of it. Right. It's been, I think the last time I really shared a book with friends that we all read at the same time was probably high school. It's been a long time. or in yeah. classes in college. Interesting. So I think uh, your book groups, I'm not surprised to have really started to thrive. I know my sister's in one and um, it's, it's the way you can have that simultaneous experience with a reading.
0: Exactly. Exper- really yeah, that moment.
1: community. Yeah.
0: Now, were you to recommend a book to a 13-year-old boy and we we often think of those boys as you know sort of the reluctant readers uh, because that the majority of them are. So what would you recommend? <coughs>
1: I feel like I would be speaking to myself, so I'm glad right to ahead. do that. When I was 13 years old, the books that changed my life were uh, Robert Cormier novels. Do you know these young sure, adult books? Yeah. The first generation of young adult yeah. that were dark and
0: so intense apocalyptic. And so yeah, the
1: chocolate war, and after the after the first death, and I Am the Cheese. I am,
0: I, we just reread I Am the Cheese. I'm in a YA book group. So oh. just re- it was, it's so, so good. good. It so holds up.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. And I heard that he, he died not that long ago, and I was really sad to hear that. I feel like the YA explosion that's happened now I hope his books are getting found by writers and readers that age. Um, the other thing that I would say is, uh, like I mentioned before, Arthur C. Clarke is a perfect um, uh, entree to speculative fiction and science fiction because the books are they are very metaphysical and they provoke a lot of big thoughts, but they're not actually that challengingly written. Sometimes science fiction uh, can get really florid. But Arthur C. Clarke is very declarative and clear. Yeah. His mission is, is much more... Um, about the I don't know how, line of thought than, yeah, <clears throat> than language. So and
0: one would think that's going to be a little bit more appealing to a reluctant reader. Yeah, it's
1: Childhood's End would be the one. I mean, I recommend Childhood's End to my twin brother, to friends now because yeah. it's still an amazing book. I've read it so many times, and it's it just it it just really triggers a lot of big thoughts about why are we here, how does the world work, where do religions come from, and it's two hundred fifty pages.
0: Right. All right. Well, that might be part of the answer to my last and My final question, which is, were you to be banished to a desert island? I know everyone hates this question too bad. (coughs) And you you get three books.
1: (coughs) Oh, okay. To reread or any books I want to read?
0: Any book. If if you're daring enough to take a book that you haven't read, what if it turns out to be one that you don't want to finish?
1: Well, I don't think people would be surprised to hear that David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas would be a book that I would want to reread. I've read it twice. I mean, I read it once through and then immediately read it a second time. The language is just so on fire and there's so many facets to it. So that... Um. well, you know, there was a period in my life when I read books like It, like just the books that were as long as books could possibly be. But I sometimes feel like those are the books that actually do reward... They, they're they like, have so many readerly rewards that it might be worth checking them out again. <clears throat> I know Stephen King actually has this wonderful novella about a guy trapped on a desert island oh, and I he has know. to eat himself. <laughs> don't um, take that. Okay, so not that. <laughs> and then um, I... I have found myself increasingly drawn to books of consciousness, so, like, purely thoughtful books. Ian McEwen is a writer I completely am in love with, and I have read everything. Um, And even the ones that people don't like that much I still find fascinating, like Solar. Uh, But uh, something like Saturday I think I could appreciate. Yeah,
0: Saturday.
1: I would reread again. and, And then I probably would go drift out into the sea and go to sleep for a long time. There you go.
0: Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's a real pleasure. And thank you for the collection. The thank print.
1: you so much for having me. This is great.
0: Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. And this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.